Today we are returning to our journey through the Gospel Book of Mark, which is in the New Testament, which is in kind of the last third of your Bible, if you hold your Bible up, if you have one with you. Oh, this, this stand is a bit slidey. It's in about the last third, that's the New Testament part. Um, so we're going to look at the... Sorry, this is going to be really annoying. Um, we're going to be looking at chapter 6, verses 30 to 44. So if you have your Bibles with you just now, you might want to open that up. Um, if you don't have a Bible, stick your hand in the air and uh, wave it around like you just don't care. And this handsome chap here will hand you a Bible. If you don't have a Bible at home, then please take one home with you. These are our gifts to you. Um, we love the Word of God. We honour scripture and we think that every home should have one um, so if you don't have one in your house please take that away with you with our love it's a gift right so I believe that Andy spoke last on Jesus walking on water which is the it's the section after this so we're kind of doing a back to the future thing we're going back in time just a little bit to the previous passage so apologies for the time warp of this, uh, of this Mark journey, but it is what it is. So this is the only miracle story that Jesus did that is recorded in all four of the gospel books. So the historical evidence for the feeding of the 5,000 is quite substantial. So shall we read it together? Have you had the time to look it up? Those of you on your phones, are you texting or are you actually reading the Bible? Okay. Hang on, I'm going to hold it. So, Mark chapter 6, verse 30. Jesus feeds 5,000. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going, they did not even have the chance to eat. He said to them, Come with me. Come by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. Some, t uh, some Bible translations say they're to a lonely place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns around and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So be he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked, go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten was 5,000. 
Okay. May God bless today's reading of his word. I'm just going to pop it over here. Right. So, in true box set Netflix style, previously in the Gospel of Mark, um, Mark and Peter are imprisoned in Rome, and Mark is writing down Peter's account of his time as a disciple of Jesus. Israel is under Roman occupation, and Rome has established Herod Antipas as the tetrarch or the, the ruler. Tetrarch's just a fancy name for ruler or governor over the area of Galilee. Um, Herod Antipas was the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the evil one who um, pronounced that all babies and all baby boys under the age of two should be killed when he heard that Jesus, well, that a king of the Jews was to be born. So when Jesus was born, it was Herod the Great who had all the baby boys killed. And so it's his son that's ruler at this point over the area of Galilee. So Jesus has appointed the 12 disciples um, and they have spent some time traveling around the area. They've been teaching about the kingdom of God. They have been demonstrating the power of God through miraculous healings and seeing people rescued from the power of evil spirits. So Jesus' reputation is spreading, and he's drawing crowds of people from all across the area to hear about his teachings and to witness the things that everyone's hearing about. So everyone's asking the question, who is this? Who is this guy? Well, everyone except the people that lived in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth, where apparently, according to the uh, Gospel of Mark, his teaching was not particularly welcomed. Mark records that Jesus could only lay hands on and heal a few sick people and that Jesus himself had been amazed at their lack of faith. So there were others that were asking the question, who is this Jesus? And they were those who were sick of living under the oppressive Roman systems of government. They were desperate for someone to come and rescue the Jewish people. They're looking for and they're hoping for this Messiah. And this means savior or liberator. But more, a bit more than that, actually, because in Judaism, the word Messiah was, um, Messiah meant it was an, an anticipated leader who would be sent specifically by God to rescue the Jewish people. So it wasn't just a brave vigilante, political figure, or freedom fighter, but they were waiting for someone who had been anointed with the power of God to carry out such a rescue. Another group of people who were beginning to pay more attention to Jesus' growing reputation were the religious leaders who were feeling a bit threatened by, uh, by the spiritual authority that Jesus was demonstrating. So they're asking, who is this guy? Who is he? He's, he's a rabbi, right? He's, he's a teacher. He's one of us, isn't he? Where's he come from? And how is he doing all this stuff? How is he doing this? Jesus has also come onto Herod's radar, King Herod, Herod Antipas. Um, Herod had recently put to death Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. And um, when Herod hears about Jesus and what he's up to, he asks the question, who is he? And the conclusion that he comes to is fascinating, actually. He says... It's John the Baptist. He's been raised back to life. And he thinks that Jesus has been sent back to torment him. 
So, Jesus then sends out the apostles, sends them out in pairs to the surrounding towns to continue his ministry by preaching repentance, healing the sick, and having authority over evil spirits. And it's here that we're picking up the story. So in verse 30, it says, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. Excuse me. So Jesus had sent the apostles out in pairs, giving them authority over evil spirits, and they were to preach repentance, they were to drive out demons and anoint sick people with oil and see them healed. This was the earliest church planting team in the history of the Christian faith. And their instructions were as follows. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. This cracks me up. As a church planter, it really, really challenges me. I wonder how many of the disciples were completely comfortable with these instructions. Think for a wee minute. If you were going to go on a journey for a few days, what would you pack? What would you pack? Me? I'm a just-in-case person. So I would have bad weather shoes, good weather shoes, going out shoes, slippers, and trainers just in case there was a gym. That's five pairs of shoes, and I'm only going away for a couple of days. And obviously I'd need my bank card, my credit card for life's little emergencies. I would get an F at Apostle School for readiness, wouldn't I? But I like to think I'm not alone there. So let's go back to the basics. Apostle School 101, what were the basic things that the apostle were instructed to do? They were to teach about the kingdom of God. They were to teach about the kingdom of God and its values, which are so opposite to the world's values. And that was the world back then and the world now as well. Very, very different to the values of the world. They were to preach or speak about repentance. Now, repentance is quite a bible or churchy word. It's can be quite a confusing word if you've not heard it before, but it just means saying sorry to God for not including him in our lives, for turning away, uh, it means turning away from past destructive behavior patterns, and then asking God to be the person on the throne of our hearts, the person in charge. That's what repentance means. And so they were supposed to preach repentance. And they were supposed to anoint the sick with oil and see them healed. And then they were supposed to get rid of evil spirits. Four things. That's what they were instructed to do. How do you think Jesus felt when he was sending them out? Do you think it was maybe a wee bit like, for those of you who are parents, how it feels when you send your, pack your kids off to their first day of school? Or maybe when you're sending them off to college? Or waving your spouse or your best friend off to a new job, or a gap yard. You know that kind of proud, nervous feeling. You're so proud of them, but you're also a little bit nervous because you care about them. I wonder if that's how Jesus felt when he sent out his friends to go and do what he'd instructed them to do. 
And so off they go. And Mark says, they preached repentance and drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Full stop. Just like that. That's it. That's what they did. That's what the Bible says. So I'm reading this and I'm thinking, wow, if that were me, no, no, if that were us, City Church, if that were Team Stonehaven, how would we be feeling right now? We'd be ecstatic, wouldn't we? To see God at work in people so powerfully. And so to come back to Jesus and report to him and say how things went, I reckon the disciples were just really excited. And Jesus, even in his grief over the death of his cousin John, must have been quite excited to hear how his friends had gotten on. Jesus, it was amazing. Oh boy, have we got stories for you. There was this one guy who, and then in verse 31, because so many people were coming and going, they did not even get the chance to eat. Can you relate to that? Just when you're trying to tell Jesus how great things were, or just when you're trying to tell Jesus what you've been doing so that he can tell you how great you are, All these people, all these other people, they just get in the way. Just when you're feeling accomplished and that you maybe probably deserve just a little pat on the back. People who've been crushed and broken by life steal your moment of having your needs met. When I was in Sunday school, a long, long time ago, I learned a little rhyme. And it was Jesus first, yourself last, and others in between. And you had to say it in that ridiculous sing-songy voice. <laughs> but in a grown-up voice, it's Jesus first, yourself last, and others in between. I can honestly tell you I've never forgotten that little phrase. It has been one of the foundation stones of my God knowledge and in my life whenever I've got those things in the wrong order invariably that's when my life has been a bit messed up Jesus first yourself last and others in between but Jesus Jesus in his kindness he sees this big big crowd of people but he also sees the needs of his 12 friends, doesn't he? And so he says in verse 31 and 32, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves to a quiet place. So how does that speak to or apply to us today? You know that this church that we're part of has this enormous, maybe slightly crazy vision to see churches planted and started all over Scotland. And we have been, for those of us who have been around for a few years, we have been so privileged to have been part of seeing that happen, seeing the growth of our church over the last 10 years as new people have come to join our church family to worship God together. It's so, so exciting. 
Sometimes it's been a wee bit scary. And sometimes it has been absolutely exhausting. But in a good way. There's no other way that I would want to spend my life than in the service of Christ Jesus and building his church. And here we are together in Stonehaven, five years down the track. This church is only five years old. Happy fifth birthday, by the way, belated. Wasn't here to celebrate it with you. And Lawrence Kirk are meeting this morning and they're only a year and a half old. And they wouldn't be meeting in Lawrence Kirk had it not been for you guys here in Stonehaven. So thank you for your faithfulness in planting, starting new sites. It is tiring, but isn't it exciting? And so here we are, meeting new people and trying to demonstrate the kingdom of God in our towns. I remember uh, James on the phone to his sister a few years ago. It was a wee while after she'd, been given birth, she'd given birth to her baby girl. And she and her husband had really struggled to conceive. So our niece is something of a, a family miracle, really. And uh, James, he was on FaceTime, so it was one of those calls where he could see her face. Where They were chatting away. And uh, he said to her, how are you? And she was like, oh, Jay, I am so tired. I didn't believe it was possible to feel this tired. This whole thing is just exhausting and then her face lit up isn't it brilliant (laughs) even the exhaustion of early parenthood she counted it as pure joy pure joy she was blessed to have this baby and so sometimes this vision that we have of starting new churches. Sometimes it is exhausting, but isn't it brilliant? Never lose focus of how exciting it is to be part of this vision. And so, back to Mark. So for those few hours in the boat with Jesus, those few hours turned out to be the solitary place that Jesus was talking about. Because it turns out that literally thousands of people were trailing them around the lake wanting to see and hear Jesus and to find an answer to their question who is this Jesus so when they arrive at the place and it's called Bethsaida it says they are greeted by a large crowd now when you say large crowd to me I'm thinking you know two three hundred people that's quite a large crowd isn't it nope Something nearer 5,000 men. And according to some of the figures that some ologists on the interweb have put together, they reckon it could have more realistically been a crowd of around about 20,000 people. Have you ever been in a crowd of 20,000 people? I'm reliably informed that Pataudry Stadium, Aberdeen's football ground, holds 22,199 people. So Jesus and the 12, disembar- the 12 disciples, they disembark at this wee town and are greeted by a stadium-sized crowd all looking at them with expectant faces. 
How would you feel if tomorrow morning you get up, you have your breakfast, you have your coffee, you leave the front door, you open the front door of your house to leave, to go to work or school or wherever you're going, and there's a large crowd waiting in the street outside your house, all just looking at you with expectant faces. How are you going to feel? <laughs> For me, I think my gut reaction would be blind panic, run back in the house, close the door, lock it, call the police. <laughs> it's not very godly, is it? It's real, though. Or would you be more generous than that? Would you be like, cup of tea, anyone? <laughs> Might have to get pop to Tesco and get some more milk. So, Jesus is grieving. And his friends have just returned from their first ministry journey. They are tired and hungry. And they want to recharge their batteries and reconnect with the Lord. And Jesus seems quite keen on the idea of some rest as well. But this secluded place that they had chosen to get some R&R was filled with thousands of people. And all of these people were looking for hope. They needed hope for their own personal circumstances, as well as hope of liberation from the oppression of Rome. There was this wide-scale desperation in that crowd. And what does it say Jesus' response was? Jesus had compassion on them, for they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, for me, this is the gem in this particular Bible story. One of the things that I love the most about our Bible is the way that concept themes or threads run throughout its, in, throughout its entirety. So you have phrases that are mentioned in the Old Testament in different genres of Bible literature, and then they link to phrases written in the New Testament. And so the continuity of these themes across hundreds of years of scriptural writings flow backwards and forwards across the centuries and the echoes of God's voice reverberate throughout the entire Bible. It's one of my favorite, favorite things about reading the Bible. And so this phrase, they were like sheep without a shepherd, has this familiar resonance. So if we dig back in time, in our Bibles, just after Moses has led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, and he's looking to appoint a successor. That successor is Joshua. Uh, and just for your information, the Hebrew translation of the Greek name Jesus is Joshua. In the book of Numbers, which was written something like 1,600 years before Jesus was born, the book of Numbers, chapter 27, verse 17, Moses says to the Lord, just in casual conversation, May the Lord, the God of the spirits of all mankind, appoint a man over this community to go out and come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in, so that the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. And then eight or nine hundred years later, in the book of 1 Kings, 
chapter 22, verse 17. I'm not quite sure why it's in capital letters. I wasn't shouting, I promise. The prophet Micaiah says to King Ahab, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. King Ahab's thinking about uh, going to war with his neighbor, and he wants all the prophets to tell him whether or not he's going to be successful. So he get, gathers all the prophets and says to them, come on, prophesy, tell me, am I going to win this battle? And a whole load of the prophets say, yes, you're going mighty in battle. You will vanquish your enemies. And Micaiah says, oh, actually, sorry, mate, I had a dream. And I saw all of Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. It turns out that Micaiah is right and that actually King Ahab dies in that battle. Should have listened to Micaiah. It's a really good story. You should read it, but not right now. Okay, so then again, we're following this thread through Scripture. Then again, about 100 years after that, so we're still talking about five or 600 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Zechariah, in chapter 10, verses 2 and 3, it's all coming up on the next slide, says, The idols speak deceit. Diviners see visions that lie. They tell dreams that are false. They give comfort in vain. Therefore, the people wander like sheep oppressed for the lack of a shepherd. My anger burns against the shepherd, and I will punish the leaders, for the Lord Almighty will care for his flock. And so Jesus' response of compassion to this enormous crowd who are leaderless and powerless is the literal fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. Throughout history, the Israelites have needed uh, rescuing, and God has appointed leaders like Moses and Joshua to rescue them from oppressive governance. And so the Jewish people find themselves wandering, leaderless, hoping for a God-appointed rescuer when Jesus comes. Can you imagine the level of anticipation that the crowd was feeling? The atmosphere would have been electric. Only this time the crowd is made up of Jews who were God's people and Gentiles. Now Gentiles is just a big collective word for those of us who are not Jews. So probably most of the people in this room, I, I would hazard a guess, most of us are Gentiles. That's all it means, someone who's not born Jewish. And so all these people, Jews and Gentiles, they're all asking, who is this man? Has he come to help us? Will he lead us? And so Jesus devotes himself to their needs. He teaches them, and he heals them, and he delivers them from evil spirits, and then he feeds them their dinner. So let's talk about the food. This whole event was happening around about the time of the Passover feast. Now, the Passover feast in the Jewish calendar is a big, big deal. It's a big celebratory meal that the Jews have. They still have it to this day um, to remember and celebrate God's protection of the Israelites from the 10th plague which God sent upon the Egyptians. Uh, for keeping the Israelites as slaves after Moses had asked for them to be freed. And uh, so they have this big meal to celebrate that. And so it was around about the same time. Do you think that's symbolic coincidence? I don't know. Could be. Maybe not. What about the food? The apostles, they didn't have any food because Jesus had told them not to pack any. And yet Jesus says to them, 
you feed them something. And the apostles, they've just come back from this trip of seeing all this exciting stuff happen in the name of Jesus. And they say, well, how? How, Lord? Are we, are we supposed to blow all our cash on this? I wonder what they would have done if Jesus had said, yeah, off you go. Greg's the baker's open. <laughs> Take nine months of your salary, off you go. But Jesus didn't do that. So Jesus says, well, what have we got? And then he takes the bread and he breaks it. Hang on a wee minute. I've heard that before. It's another one of those echoes, isn't it? Only we've heard it later on because it's a reverberation echo of the Last Supper. And so throughout the story, Jesus is dropping these massive hints about who he is. And we've got the great benefit of hindsight because we can read to the end of the book. We've read the end of the story, so we know the answer. We know who Jesus is. Because, and because of that, we see all these big hints in bold technicolor. Jesus knows their question. He knows they're all asking, who is he, who is he? And Jesus is answering their question in everything that he does. So why then? Why does Jesus tell the disciples to do it, to feed the people, and then he goes and does it himself? Why does he do that? Do you ever do that? Pass me the salt. Oh, it's okay, I'll get it myself. <laughs> do you ever do that? I do it all the time. I'm really sorry for a family. Why did Jesus do that? I don't think it was because it was faster for him to do it himself. I don't think that's why, but. Did he need the disciples' help? Maybe was he too tired to do it? Did he want them to feel like they could do it? Was he being encouraging? Why? Why did Jesus ask them to do it and then go and do it himself? Another question for you. What are you like when you're tired and hungry? Are you crabby and short-tempered? Are you sleepy and distant? Or impatient and over-emotional? We all know that tired and hungry does not bring out our most godly character. And yet Jesus, when he's tired and hungry and grieving on top of all that, his default character setting is compassion. Jesus is compassion. He looks at this powerless and leaderless crowd of people and his heart response is compassion. I wonder if Jesus ever had to learn the wee rhyme from my Sunday school, how he would say it. Jesus first, yourself last, and others in between. Maybe, maybe he would say, God first, Jesus last, and the whole world in between. Jesus, in this moment, is the perfect example 
of sacrificial kingly leadership. So why then? Why does he say to the disciples, you feed them? Why? If he was going to do it himself the whole time. Jesus has already shared with the disciples. He's shared with his friends all of his stuff. He's shared his teaching. By sharing his teaching, he's shared his mind with them. By saying to them to go out into all the the, the towns and villages around about and sending them out, he shared his mission with them. And by giving them the authority to perform miraculous healings and see people delivered from demonic oppression, he has shared his ministry with them. So what's left to share with them? Jesus wants them to share in his heart. Jesus wants them to share in his compassion, to share in how his heart feels. He doesn't just want them to solve the problem. Solution finding is good, but it's really not the point here. Jesus wants his followers to know and share his heart for all people. He wants his followers to share his motives, the things that drive him. He wants his modus operandi or his way of functioning to be shared by his followers. He wants us to know him so that we know how he feels, not just so that we can respond, fix things, and do good deeds, but so that we can know and feel the very beating heart of God. That's what Jesus was wanting to share with the disciples when he said, you do it. And so this morning we started off with this question, who is Jesus? Who is he? All these people from history were asking, all these people around Jesus were asking, and we were asking, who is Jesus in this moment? And I'm afraid I'm just going to leave you with a whole bunch more questions, I'm afraid. <laughs> so my questions for us, as a church, are we as followers of Jesus being obedient to the Apostle School Basics? Are we teaching about the kingdom of God? Are we preaching repentance, saying sorry to God? Remember that word? Are we seeing people healed? Are we anointing people with oil? and asking God to heal them? Are we seeing people rescued from the power of evil and darkness? That's my first question. My second question, are we tired and needing some rest, but still counting the tiredness as pure joy? Because it is a privilege to honor God by serving him in his commission, in his mission and in his ministry to the towns and places that we live in. And my last question is, what are the things that cause you to feel God's compassion rising in you? What are the things, the people groups, the situations, whether it's local or global, what are the things that you feel God's heart breaking over?
because those are the things that he's calling you to do something about. He is sharing his heart with you so that you can join in. What are the things that cause you to feel God's compassion rising in you? There will be many, many varying answers to that question in this room because we're all passionate about lots of different things. But it's a gift from God, that compassion. And so I would encourage you to pursue these questions. Find answers to these questions. Shall we pray?